Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren. And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking. We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love. Stepping away from our evangelical church background, all the while leaning into God and moving forward in our faith. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. Good morning. It's Good so nice morning. to hear your voices finally. <laughs> I know. Good morning. Are you, you're in Canada, correct? Uh, of course. Okay. Yes. I mean, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Honestly, Canada is the best. We've been up there a few <laughs> times and there's nothing like it. I mean, driving, driving is normal unless you get to like Montreal area and then everything's in French, but like. Yes, <laughs> it's true. And I think we have a kind of, um, sweetness in this particular political moment for you as Americans yeah. because we get to watch everything happen but we don't have to worry about it impacting us in the same way so yeah it's uh Canada in general has been I mean it's not without its problems and but yeah, yeah it's a, pr- a pretty pretty wonderful place to live especially in contrast <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah definitely <laughs> I uh I actually have Canadian citizenship because of oh, my native heritage yeah and yeah I'm like, well, you know what? If things really go south, we'll just go north. <laughs> you, you bet. And we will welcome you with open arms. It's, um, it's not surprising to hear you say that. I've heard so many people say that recently who have citizenship, citizenship or people who even are applying for work transfers. Like, it's really interesting to watch mm. the, the talk that everybody had in 2016 is sort of like ramping back up again about like, if this happens, we're going to come to Canada. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Hillary McBride, and she is best known as co-host of the Liturgist podcast and host of the CBC podcast, Other People's Problems. But that work has only been possible with years of clinical practice as a counselor and research as a psychologist, a base of expertise that includes work at the intersection of spirituality and mental health, trauma and trauma therapies, body image, eating disorders, sex and sexuality, and feminist approaches to psychology. Her first book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, was published in 2017. Her next book, This is My Body, Embodiment and Why It Matters for Just About Everything, will be out in 2021. She has been recognized by the American Psychological Association and the Canadian Psychological Association for her research addressing our relationships with our bodies across the lifespan and how to make a home within our bodily selves in a world that asks us to leave our bodily homes from the moment we're born. Hillary makes her home in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hillary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here with you. <laughs> We're so excited. You know, in, in, in the world of em- embodiment and 
Mm. mindfulness and spirituality. I would consider you a household name. So <laughs> of course, wow. we're, we're, we're going to get into that because that's, you know, kind of what, what we love. Um, we know oh, very yeah. well about you. But the thing that we like so much on this podcast is, is getting to hear other people's stories. So we want to, mm. we can get into your expertise, but we also want to hear about you from you. Um, sure. And we like to hear a little bit about your background. So where you grew up and what kind of sort of religious affiliation your family mm-hmm. had in your adolescent years. Great. Okay. Uh, so I grew up just outside on the outskirts of Vancouver, which is on Musqueam, with Tooth, and Squamish land. And it is, uh, it's beautiful. There are mountains and there's ocean and there are so many trees and the air is clear. And mm. there's, some, there's more and more that I'm connecting to about what the land feels like these days. Mm. And I'm not flying in and out of Vancouver in the same way that I used to be constantly, you know, every other week flying somewhere for work. But I remember this experience of really leaving Vancouver for the first time and coming back and flying in and seeing seeing the mountains and seeing the ocean in a way that really just struck me. And it, it was like it kind of wrapped itself around the center of myself in yeah. a way that that Vancouver, it's like it wound itself into me, the land, the way that the land looks. And I often find when I'm traveling other places, uh, if there aren't mountains, I get disoriented. If there is an ocean, mm-hmm. I feel, um, you know, like claustrophobic. There is something about this particular signature of how the water meets these mountains and yeah, it just, it does something to me. So I'm very much grateful to the people who've, whose land I live on. It's unceded land. And so I feel a complicated relationship with mm. with that too, knowing that there has been historic and ongoing wrongdoings for the mm. Indigenous people on whose land I live. But that has been a part of my, I would say my spiritual work in the last few years is understanding that and sitting with the weight and the grief of that and also wanting to do to do my piece in understanding essentially what you're asking this question, like, where do I come from too? If this land that I'm living on is is unseated, where where are my people from? I grew up in a home um, where my parents were really intimately involved in the church. So we, we were a a part of the, the Baptist church, but the Baptist church here in Vancouver that I was a part of I'm learning has a very different flavor than the Baptist church Mm -hmm. that some of my American colleagues and friends are familiar with. And so there was, um, there isn't the same kind of nationalism that's Mm -hmm. interwoven into the faith practices. Uh, my, my grandfather, my dad's father had a conversion experience where he was apparently an extremely violent man and then had, uh, an epiphanic experience where he met God and had a conversion experience once they had recently immigrated to, to Canada from Germany. And he, he became nonviolent because of his faith. Mm -hmm. And it was um, just when I hear the stories about that, there is something, a kind of sweetness and a kind of rightness about that. When I think about what faith is supposed to do for us, like it's supposed to make us more loving, uh, more connected to each other, more connected to the land, more connected to ourselves and and the right here and who is in front of us and not necessarily just thinking about faith as this escape plan out of this life into something that's supposed to be better. So we... Yeah, we grew up in a home that was deeply involved in our faith community. But one of the signatures 
that I think really shapes my my faith journey growing up is that my parents, both of them therapists, scholars, researchers, clinicians, understood the psychology of the person, understood what it means to develop psychologically in a way that I think is actually quite unique in people who, for people who are really deeply committed to their faith communities. That mm. I think that there can be the assumption that faith is anti-science or anti-theory. Right. And yeah. in my home growing up, it wasn't. They weren't bifurcated from each other. That this the practice of psychology was deeply interwoven with what it meant to be a person of faith who would sit with people who were hurting and who would attend to the people whose pain had been dismissed culturally. Wow. Yeah. So I had a really rare experience of deep immersion in faith and the treasuring of science and critical thought and uh, understanding social justice issues as they connected with psychology, as they connected with faith. And I was always given permission to think critically about faith. And so when I was about six, I think I was about 17, I, I stopped going to church because I wanted to see what it would be like to hear or to pay attention to what God was saying, to what the spirit was saying through my own ears, through my own mind, through my own body, because there was a sense of wrongness of thinking like, why, why is this person who's standing at the pulpit, the conduit between what is holy Mm. and me? And that there's a kind of, that, that doesn't feel right. And my parents were like, great, do, do your thing. Listen, tell us what you hear. And so I would have, have these kind of church services for myself Sunday morning while they would go off to church and, and go on some spiritual inquiry into who God was and how God would show up in my body as someone who wasn't trained in like reading Hebrew and interpreting and doing hermeneutic, like wondering what, what's, where, where's my place in being this in between, between what's very real and what feels mystical. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I was, I was given a kind of generosity spiritually in terms of being able to take forays into different mystical elements of my Christian faith. Yeah. And that set me up to feel like I had the freedom to think critically without ever having to question my belonging in my family or in my faith community. Mm. And I think that's a unique feature that not everybody has the privilege of experiencing. There's this really like black and white thinking and conditional belonging where you have to believe in order to be loved and accepted and part of your family or part of your community. Mm. And I just never had to do that. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I feel it was, I was really lucky and I'm happy to answer more questions or clarify anything about that because I'm obviously people are complex and there's more stories to tell. Well, I can also leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, that's, that's, that's beautiful. I love that. You know, our, our name of our podcast is Deconstruct, but it's we find that some of the our favorite stories, of course, are ones that don't necessarily have the uh, the religious family tie of the the trauma of well, I I came right. from this dogma and I, you know, I got married and divorced or I had this and there's there's beauty in those stories, but and we've had a lot of those conversations, but it's it's definitely more rare to hear. Um, backgrounds and family history um, from people where they said, I was given that permission to explore mm-hmm. and I was given permission to um, hear from God on my own. And I mean, I think that's beautiful. And of course, everybody has things to work through from their childhood. Nobody has sure. a perfect yeah. <laughs> family history or childhood. And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm well aware of that. But I think that 
hearing your the way you grew up gives me hope for other families too who want to incorporate a religious faith and even have some of those religious traditions, but at the same time hold them, um, not even hold them loosely, but also understand that people experience God in so many different ways and to be able to have room for that, for other people's experiences. I remember the first time that I heard from someone in my faith circle that we could idolize our construction of God and we could make the idea that we have about God an idol. Mm. And it, it really, I mean, I was just a young teenager at that point, but for me, I think I've always been phenomenologically and philosophically oriented and understanding kind of like the meta processes about how we think about things. And to me, there was something so expanding about that. It was like all of a sudden the boundaries on what I was thinking got to got to move outwards and continuously move outwards as in the same way that we think about the universe constantly expanding. It was like this mm-hmm. understanding of God, like what I was thinking was not bad because I think of God as being bigger than even my understanding. So right. transcending that, but it was like, it can, it, it started this process of unfolding out further and further and further and because of that, I never had to tear something down. Yeah. And I think that's the unique feature mm. of this. But I mean, I think you're you're right. Every family has its pain and there's always things to be worked through. And I'm so glad that because of the way that I was raised, I didn't have to work through in the same way the faith piece because there were so many other pieces of my story that were so, there was so much suffering that I'm glad that I could have that as something to hold Mm. on to. And I didn't have to, to question um, whether I was loved by my community in the way that I know that some people do. And yeah. 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 That's true for a lot of people's story. I think whenever you said you, your idea of who God is or what God is, um, can be an idol. And then whenever you, you heard that and that kind of transformed and expanded you and expanded your perspective of God. I think there was a point um, early on in my in my own personal deconstruction mm-hmm. that that happened for me. But even more so, more of a I decided that God got to try on different different Ooh, yeah. uh, personalities and different or not personalities but persons. Like for yeah. me, when I decided that I wanted to try on a she God. I wanted God to yeah. be her. Um, and when I decided I wanted God to be my ancestors and when I decided mm. I wanted God to be energy, I, I think we evolve and grow, but our perspective of God and life and the universe also grows. And I think the idea of expansion is awesome and beautiful, but I think being able as a human, for me, I like giving God um, temporary boxes that fit my current oh, yeah. season. Um, but I wouldn't be able to do that before if I didn't allow the, or didn't understand that God and that who I saw God was, could be an idol, you know, until right. I could break right. that down. I could never try on different versions of God, if that makes right. sense. Right. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think we're given to per- permission to do that when we actually look at the Christian scriptures. We see things like mm. friend and lover and king and father and many-breasted one and yeah. mother. And we're given this permission to use all of these images and roles and constructs as a way to get us closer to all of the different sides of everything that God is. And yet somehow it feels like even though the scripture writers are modeling that so well for us, there is this fear about doing that right. in certain Christian circles. Like, oh no, we're going to be, oof, my gosh, we're stepping outside of the of the confines of our tradition and we're going to, it's going to get scary. And the, you're all of a sudden mm. the Satan's going to be there. Right. <laughs> we don't right. see that our tradition gives us that play and that freedom and that sensuality. Yeah. It's, it's so there right yeah. in the text. Absolutely. I definitely agree. And, you know, with your parents, both being therapists, mm. was that something for you that you always knew you wanted to get into psychology and research and become a writer? Or was that something that developed after, you know, you were 17 and started having your own um, time and experience of who God was? Right. I, I really didn't want to be a psychologist. And I think I really didn't want to be in part because I was resisting something that I'm, I am actually, I feel like is written into me in the same way that Vancouver has wound itself around my, my core. Mm. I think psychology and understanding people's stories and listening and caring deeply about their pain is it's in my cells. It is part of me, but I, I, I was a violinist. I went to university for my first degree in violin performance violin. So I, as a musician, um, was really, really interested in that I would be playing violin for the rest of my life. And what I haven't mentioned, but what you might know is that I had a a life-threatening eating disorder for Mm -hmm. a number of years. And it was really in my process of playing violin towards the end of my undergrad that I, I felt this cosmic connection between the eating disorder and how I was playing violin. And that might not seem immediately obvious to anybody else, but for me, it was more of the underlying process. It was Mm. what was happening inside of me and the inability to engage with something flexibly. Everything had to be perfect. And for those of you, I don't know if you have played classical music, the idea is that everything gets perfect Mm -hmm. and you do not stop. And there is this kind of obsessional quality to it that for me, I was like, I, I could just get lost in these worlds of shame and judgment about the one wrong note that I couldn't get right. And that you know, the Bruch Concerto, I was just, it was really problematic and I couldn't free myself from that way of thinking about it. So I, I ended up actually leaving school and I had been engaging in this correspondence by mail, of course, Mm. (laughs) with a, uh, with a midwife in the Philippines. And we arranged for me to actually go live in her birth house for a little while, because what I was really searching for was an experience of the body that gave me a new way of understanding what the body was, because I could only see my body through the lens of shame and perfectionism Mm. and all of the safe self-hatred and self-harm that I was really perpetuating against myself. So in an effort to have a different or a, a corrective bodily experience, I went and lived in this birth house for several months and witnessed and supported all of these women 
giving, giving birth and doing prenatal care for like high, high, high TB um, populations of people who were out in tribes, disconnected from regular or routine medical care. And it was transformative. Mm. Gosh, the things that I learned about the body, the things that I learned about culture, the things that I learned about the problem of globalization and westernization and colonization, the problems that I learned about my perspective of my own self just really started to untangle from me. And it was through these long nights, uh, birth by candlelight often, mm. where, yeah, it felt like I was being born again in a way. Yeah. And then I came back to Vancouver and I was dead set on becoming a a midwife and I had applied to the program. And as I've learned, the programs are extremely competitive. It's there. The midwifery profession is exploding here in Canada. I yeah. think in part because people are understanding the, the medical literature about using midwives for non high risk births. Yeah. But as I was applying and I did, I ended up not getting in, I thought I'll just go study psychology while I'm, you know, waiting to apply next year. Yeah. And as I've said in other places before, there was something about studying psychology that it clicked for me. And it was this awareness that everything I loved about midwifery, I could do with psychology Mm. and be a kind of midwife of the mind, a midwife of the heart, Mm. where we are taking these, these narratives about birth and applying them to what happens when we're sitting across from someone who is in distress, but there's actually there's nothing inherently wrong with them. In the same way that midwifery offers us a a non-medicalized, non-pathological perspective of this transformation and this birth process, I applied that to how I see the the human who's sitting across from me. And it gave me a way to see that every time somebody comes in, even if they appear to be in distress, there is something that is happening. There's something new that is being born in them. And if they are skillfully accompanied, if they are attended to by somebody who knows how not to abandon them or rescue them or try to take Mm. the process from them, but walk skillfully through every single moment. So they are not alone and they are Mm. shepherded that that person can be transformed in what originally felt like a suffering experience. So really that's my origin story of getting into psychology is not doing violin and not (laughs) being a midwife. And I always like to talk about like, Oh, this is my backup plan. Like this is plan mm-hmm. C. And I'm like, I feel like I'm crushing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just anyone out there who like needs to needs that hope about their vocation. You never know what your plan C is. Oh, I love yeah. that. We I'm, all need that. I'm curious. So through mm. through all of these stories of like external yeah. change in your life and connecting to to your em- embodiment and and mm-hmm. and music and all of these other things and and connecting to land. I'm curious, has your like identity of self always been a through line for you because it to me the way that you describe it it sounds like you've Mm -hmm. always been you've always been the same the same self the same consciousness the same like mentality and Mm -hmm. and just the external things have changed but I'm but I'm curious it was was there ever a change for you do you feel like there was there was a person that you were before that that isn't connected to who you are now or or has it always been just just the same self on a path Oh, I love this question. It's so it's so uh, rich in terms of even the politics of how we understand self within the field of psychology. But I, my personal understanding, and this might, I give myself permission here to change it in five years or tomorrow, <laughs> but where I stand today is that I, 
I am the same self that I was when I was born, but that when the self inside of me, and I think of that as like what we call core state or core self, Mm. um, that is something that's accessible to all of us that we all have that actually is no different than what your core self or your core state would be like. And so in a way it is mine, but it is also universal. Mm. I have this deep connectedness to that and an awareness through exploring my story that when that part of me was not seen and was not supported and when it had to go away to make me safe to protect me from wounds in my family and my community and in the world. I developed these layers of protectiveness on top of myself, these parts that, that manage the distress inside. And actually, if someone was looking at me back then, they might've said, wow, you were such a different person. Mm. But the way that I think about it is that those layers of protection were like coats that I put on in in a really, really cold blizzard in the winter and that they covered up who I am on the inside, but who I am has always been there and hasn't ever changed that isn't changeable and is probably, if I could go so far as this to say, to say that it is the I am, yeah. it is the self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are, those are the same. But when you look at my presentation, my behavioral presentation, or even like when I was in the eating disorder, I was just I was just lying to everybody about everything. I was so far away from myself because I had so many coats of protection on. So many layers were needed to help me manage or get away from the pain. So in a way, I think that my answer to your question is that I was both always the same and perhaps appeared different and perhaps felt disconnected from myself, but that the thing inside that animates me, that is me, that also animates you was there, is there, and isn't going anywhere. Mm, I love that. It's something that changed a lot um, in mm-hmm. our spiritual progression. The yeah. understanding that that we are never disconnected from divinity, but only perceive disconnection from it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. Um, yeah. We've actually been doing a lot of, I mean, and research on my end and, and embodiment on mm-hmm. Lauren's end, but um, a lot of decolonization of faith and returning back to the spirituality that that we were born with. And mm-hmm. it's been an interesting process of stripping away all of this, those um, protective layers, those, those things yes. that, that yes. try to acclimatize, acclimatize us to the environment that we're in and this, and, and the culture that, that we're used to of, of Westernized Christianity. And mm-hmm. it's just been, it's been so, it's been so healing moving back oh, towards just like, I don't know, that just raw spirituality. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about childhood as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, was there a, is there a time that I, that you felt connected to that um, on almost like untainted um, spirit connectedness? And for me, mm-hmm. I did have a, there was a season, there was a time of my life where I was old enough to be to remember and to be aware of the feelings and the within my body and then within nature and being connected to what I would consider God or divine um, or energy. And that was before, you know, a lot of religion kind of took place. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something, you know, when we're talking about that core self, um, there's, there's a time in my life and I was in back when I was in college where I, I think back on it and I'm like, I, I don't see myself in a lot of that time, but it's just because of those layers that we were talking about 
Um, right. Yeah. There's just so much that I was navigating that I don't think I, I was, I was lost trying on things that really weren't meant uh, for me. Um, wow. Yeah. And I was always there. I never lost myself. I never, I, you, you, you can't lose self, but <laughs> I, I felt I felt lost, just like, you know, Adam, you said, you feel that separation, you know, with God. And I I relate to you, Hillary. I actually went to school for music as well. Oh, Um, did you? Yeah. So I I went to uh, Belmont and I got my bachelor of music. I studied voice. Um, Mm. So I I can relate to the, that perfectionism um, a lot. I, I haven't really heard people talk about it so much in with music, but that makes a lot of sense as to like what you're talking about with the 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 notes and you have mm-hmm. other people who can tell you if it's right or wrong. You you there's an yes. outside source as well as your own inner voice that that knows if this is right or wrong. Um if you're on or if you're off, if right, right timing right. or not. Like there there is black and white answers. Um or so we think, you know, in music and mm-hmm. so I mean, I relate to that, and I've always been obsessed, truly, with uh, with with birth and with all of that. So I think mm. there's just so much that mm-hmm. I I relate to oh, in I'm that. So glad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I always say, you know, and I I have friends who have gotten pregnant, have had babies, and I've just always been so so intrigued. And so maybe it's mm. maybe it's a similar thing. Um, hearing you talk about why you were probably so um, just enthralled in the, the, the process of birth. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think it is that embodiment it is that the bodily experience and being and understanding that our body knows best. Um, Mm -hmm. that's something that I think, you know, I, I haven't studied midwifery, but that's something that I, I have come across that that's, that's very like streamlined through. It's like, it's not an emergency. Your body knows, um, right. and right. it's just been a process of learning how to now embody my spiritual practice and, and, um, I don't know, just, just figure out what that means for me now leaving the traditional Christian practices and, mm-hmm. um, diving into learning from other cultures and learning from, um, other different peoples and backgrounds and and that's part of what I love about this podcast is talking to all different people from different backgrounds and you know as as someone who is indigenous I've I've talked a lot about this um before on the podcast and even on my Instagram but I'd love to hear your thoughts especially since you know I get this question asked a lot how what would you say to someone who is wanting to to implement spiritual practices, but doesn't, but is nervous to appropriate other cultures? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I think being informed is a really important part of that. Learning to treasure and learn from the, the cultural practices that you see others perform and engage in and respect them. I think that's a really important part of delineating, like when we're just taking mindlessly or we don't even know is like what what's the tradition behind what's happening and can I respect it even if I don't participate in it can I honor mm-hmm. that there is a long tradition that I know nothing about that these people are um displaying when they when they wear that or when they dance that way or sing that way yeah. I think 
I think it gets complicated when we are spiritually poor because we see the rich traditions of other cultures and Mm. we want not necessarily the practice, but we want the home that built that practice. We want to see we want to see ourselves within a tradition where we feel held and it is so easy to think we could take and we would get that, that kind of richness and depth. Um, and sometimes when we are looking at other traditions and we are seeing the, oh my gosh, the richness of the traditions, we are not necessarily interested in cultivating the relationships and the time and the practice to actually get to the richness. We're just wanting to do something that feels spiritual, but is different than what we came from. Almost as if we are like, we sometimes call it like a reaction formation in psychotherapy, Mm. where if we hate, we hate a person instead of being with the the hatred or understanding what the anger is about, we decide we're going to love them and we go towards them and we're extra nice. And we, mm. we sometimes like have this, I think, confused relationship with our spiritual practice where instead of examining the hurt with our faith, we, we want to rush into taking something from someone else because we want the sweetness of the home of spirituality without having to do the work. Right. Right. To, to earn that interconnectedness or that tradition. But what I might offer is some practice that, that I think we, we forget is spiritual because it perhaps it seems so banal or cotidian is to say, listen to your hunger. Mm. Like, listen, if, if, if there is holy in you, if it is written into yourselves, into your being, and your body is asking for something, your spiritual practice is to develop a, a finely tuned uh, psychic ear to your bodily voice. Yeah. And when you are hungry, feed yourself. I mean, the rhythm that comes from being in the body is, is something that can, if we let it deeply connect us to the rhythms of the earth and the rhythms of other people. But this needing to feed ourselves is not only is not only physical, but it is also spiritual to invite us into connection with the food that we eat and the land. It's an, a reminder that we we need to keep going back to the source to be satiated, that even when we ate breakfast, we still have to go find lunch because we still need to be mm. filled up and we need to draw that into ourselves. And so I think we we want something more complex, perhaps, perhaps more um, visible. <laughs> like I think about the Pharisees and Jesus mm. talking about people praying on the corner. Like we want something that other people can point to and say, right. wow, you're doing a good <laughs> spiritual practice. Look at how you're praying on the street corner. But I have found such sweetness in, in feeding myself. Yeah. Yeah. Or when I am tired, letting myself rest because it reminds me I'm closing something and there's always something new coming in the morning. And those to me feel like anchors in a world that often feels chaotic and disruptive, but also beautiful to have these anchors of rhythm in the body. Yeah. Yeah. I I tend to believe that religion and spirituality can go hand in hand, but they don't necessarily <laughs> always. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but in, in therapy, religious verbiage can, can sometimes be triggering for people depending on their, you know, their history and, um, mm-hmm. where they're coming from. I, I'm curious how you've navigated separating your language on spiritual practices such, you know, as mindfulness and embodiment and meditation, um, how you've separated that from a specific religious affiliation. How do you navigate that 
with people coming from a religious mm -hmm. background? Yeah, I think the the benefit of my scholarship is that I cite everything empirically. So mm -hmm. I can say, here's what the data says. The data says that when we work on interoceptive awareness and we strengthen the neural networks in our insula, this specific anatomical structure that senses what we're feeling in our body and then relays it to our conscious mind. When we do that, we have a more resilient body image. When we do that, we have a stronger connection to our sense of self-worth. And so why don't we practice sensing our body from the inside because the empirical evidence suggests that you're actually going to improve your, me your mental well-being if you do that. And I think this is the, um, the sneaky route into some of these practices is that they're extremely rigorous and well-studied. And we can, appoint, we can point to the data and say, when you slow down and take a breath, you are doing one of the only conscious things that you can do to switch your nervous system response from sympathetic to parasympathetic and your breath acts as a conduit into rest and safety when otherwise everything else around you might feel distressing or chaotic. So instead of saying engage in a mindful, you know, breath prayer practice, I can say that the science is actually telling me we need to activate your parasympathetic nervous system right now because mm. you're dysregulated. So let's take some breaths together and why don't you feel my presence with you while you breathe? Mm. So because of the scholarship and the rigor of psychology and um, my training is not as a, as a Christian yeah. therapist, <laughs> I happen to have my own religious and spiritual practices and identity, but I function in the world professionally as someone who is not connected to spirituality or religion. Yeah. And that allows me to to essentially only use what is evidence-based and nothing else. And it happens that there's a lot of evidence for some of the things that our traditions have been saying for a very long time, yeah. including, I love the idea of the way that green space and being, putting our feet in the grass mm. and turning our eyes away from the computer screen and looking at the trees around us improves the quality of focus and our executive functioning and our, you know, our mood, our ability to sustain energy throughout the workday. So we've got all this evidence that tells us all, what every, all of these traditions are and have been saying for so long. And I think that when we go in that way, we can avoid the, um, the things that push on old religious or community bruises yeah. around manipulation and using spiritual practice in a way to, to make people feel shame about themselves or like they have to earn some sort of goodness or love. Yeah. Brilliant. And that's why you are who you are. <laughs> oh, <thank> you. <laughs> so awesome. And you know, you said the, the, you're not, you're not trained in like a Christian practice. Um, and I'm for that, I'm thankful, but do you, do you identify with one specific, uh, religious practice? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I still go to church. Um, I would say that I fall within the Christian mystic, mm -hmm. uh, categories. Um, yeah. what feels more important to me about my faith right now is thinking about the intersection of, the incarnation and the the womanist, um, the liberation theology evaluation of what Christian texts are saying. And so really not necessarily paying so much attention to the things that we thought of as being miraculous, but mm. more paying attention to the story of the people who wrote the scripture and what that tells us about political oppression, power, and marginalization. Yeah. And to me, that feels like something that 
continues to invite me to see the ways that I am blind. This continues to invite me to see the, the thoughtless ways that I move through the world. And I think when, when we do that, when we have that experience, we're acting in agreement with what I, I think the scriptures are telling us is important or what I think Jesus was even coming to say. So as long as I keep expanding and as long as I keep finding myself even more loving and even more of the ways that I hurt other people, uh, even more in alignment with the idea for all things to be brought into their fullness, then I feel like I can make a home within the tradition of the church, uh, the tradition yeah. of Christianity. Although I will say that um, the the family of people who identify themselves as Christian is so wide yeah. and that is both painful and beautiful mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. same time mm-hmm. because we can use the same label and mean so many different things. Definitely. But I, I'm doing a, a, a multi-part sermon series at the church that I go to in for Advent, all about embodiment and what the incarnation means for us around justice and trauma and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Oh, love it. And... To me, it just feels like, oh, this is this is my these are my people because I can talk about a God who said, I I want to be in a body so that you know that being in a body has never been the problem. Mm. Yeah. And anytime you make another body the problem, you're actually missing me. You're missing me. Yeah. And you want the incarnation when it's an escape hatch out of your reality, but do you want the incarnation? When the body is brown or black, do you want the incarnation when the body is disabled? Do you want the incarnation when there is chronic pain or injury or cancer? And so my, I just feel like there's so much in this well of what it means to have an incarnate holy that I, I don't know. I just can't imagine myself ever dipping my bucket in and it coming up dry. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, right. Yeah, we just take it one day at a time. <laughs> one day at a time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for expanding on that, and um, I'm just always so curious to see to hear from people who still associate with the religion that they grew up with. Um, right. Yeah. And you know, taking on different aspects, and we all grow into different human beings and our parents because we're mm-hmm. all individual. Um, yeah. And so it's just, it's, it's fun to, to hear, to hear that. It's, it's interesting yeah. to me. It's like, it's, it's personal, it's person to person research. I get to hear stories and I get right. to, like, <laughs> not that I'm trying to study you, but at the same time, like, that's what we do, right? We just, we right. learn from each other and, um, yeah. yeah. And because of the work you do and how much time and effort goes into probably, you know, triple checking yourself and, um, you know, I'm not even a, th- a therapist, but I've been told I therapize myself, which has, uh. its, has its positives. But sometimes, you know, the process is um, of sitting down in, in front of a mirror, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. That can that can be really exhausting. Um, and yeah. so in somewhat outdated terms, how how do you get your cup filled back up after pouring out to so many other people? Do you see a therapist or are oh. there other ways you, you know, fill back up? Hey everyone, want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. Oh my goodness, I love this question. Yes, because the person of the therapist is still a person. Right. 
Right. But like the person who's sitting on the other side, I think these are outdated constructs of therapy that a person is almost like this container that everybody just uh, lets everything land in and they hold it in their body, but they don't Mm. exist outside of their office. And they're always just waiting there for you to come back in to kind of dump out again. But yeah, that's not true. That's (laughs) not true. No. And my, my, the way that I practice therapy, my particular theoretical framework requires me to be so present and so in my body and so expressive of how I feel in the room. And so I, I often will tell the people I'm sitting across from, I'm so grateful you shared that. I'm so I'm learning this and this and this from you. Wow, mm. I t- I'm taking what you're saying and I'm letting it touch me. And I have tears in my eyes yeah. as you're telling me your story, which means I have to be so tuned into myself. Mm-hmm. And so to do good work, I have to actually be thinking about what I'm doing for myself when I'm not with my patients or clients. Mm. But I have I have a therapist. I have a supervisor. Uh, clinical supervision is super important, especially when we work in private practice, because we're not expected to see everything. So it's really an assumption that anybody who's practicing independently has at least one supervisor who they can take their stuff to and say, hey, I'm stuck here. Can you watch my tape and tell me if I'm missing anything or here's this tricky ethical situation? And that is actually just the expectation of ethical practice. Yeah. So I'm I'm meeting the requirements with that. And then I always like to say about therapy, I'm a therapist because it's worked for me. Yeah. And then I'm never yeah. going to sell someone some medicine that I won't take. Like that to me feels so incongruent. Mm. And not that you have to be in therapy for the rest of your life, but I never want to sit across from a person and say like, oh, this is just for you. And you are the one who needs to be looking, but I'm fine and I'm done looking. Yeah. Like I just, I don't want to create that power dynamic in my room. Yeah. But I have, the, oh, I I have to tell you, I'm obsessed with my husband. Mm. I'm obsessed with him. It's a problem. I like can't get work done when he's in the house. Aww. And he is, he is the most loving and tender and aware of me and will often be like, hey, I'm seeing things. Like you're, you're working these long days. Can, can you pay attention to if there's something that you're avoiding or what's happening for you? Or like your laptop is still open and it's 11 and I'm going to bed. What can you check in with what's happening for yourself? Because I can get in such flow states around my work, especially when I'm working on writing or research that I, I just like everything goes dark and I get into this tunnel of, um, motivation so his tenderness and sensitivity to me and to himself means that we are constantly tuning in to to what health and unhealth looks like in our dynamic Mm -hmm. and I have so many friends who I mean this is the benefit of being a therapist and doing so many years of grad schools I've picked up a lot of friends who are wise and fierce and loving and tender and kind and generous and my inner circle of of friends particularly those who are in the helping professions or who understand that or have done that are, are just everything, everything to me because they can love with the same intensity as I can. Um, Right. And then I think my boundaries, like my boundaries are wicked sharp Mm. and I am, I'm fiercely protective over my time because it means that when I am saying something where when I'm doing something and I'm saying yes to something, I'm actually giving my full yes to it because I've decided I'm going to consent to that time. I'm going to consent to that gift of time mm. with whoever I'm with. And so yeah. it means I'm really there, but I know when it ends and when I'm going to shift my attention. And I schedule rest and I schedule breaks and play. And for me, like being, feeling my feet on the ground, um, I run a lot. 
I'm uh, into running. And for me, it feels like this incredible expression of my existential freedom to mm. just go anywhere I want and go as fast as I want. And like I run by the ocean and often I go swimming in the ocean here. And that to me feels like being held in the womb of, of God. Mm. So I love being in the ocean. It's like coming back home. Oh. I think that's probably, yeah. I mean, mm. the most part, but I have rigorous self-care practices and I right. still play music and I waste time and I do some kinds of art and yeah. I play Candy Crush sometimes, you know, like all of these <laughs> things that are like part of like just Oh, so you're healing? Oh, great. Oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. You know, and I also can relate to you. I am also obsessed with my husband. So <laughs> <laughs> sitting across yes. from me in the room. We are very fortunate. Yes, it's people. so good. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, I, I love hearing that. I, I think Thank you. I think that they're the more people get into their work, right? The more people are, um, I don't know, they dive more into their craft. They they realize the true nuance. Uh, and it seems like people start churning out warning signs <laughs> for their specific oh, okay. occupation. And it, from what it sounds like, you love what you do. And that's, it I should, do. it should be like that. Um, but do you, do you recommend psychology as a line of work? And, and who do you think would make great ooh. psychologists? Ooh, ooh. Well, it's perhaps not the most popular way of thinking about things. And there's an element of romanticism and idealism in it. But I think about the professionalization of the practice of psychology as being a, a product of the failure of community to do community well. Mm. And I think in some ways that we should all be psychologists yeah. and not that we are uh, doing analysis of everyone, which is also not the primary practice of psychology. It is more of the the inquiry and the curiosity and the study and the longing to know what makes what makes you you. What makes this pain hurt so bad? And where is your strength? And if we could if we could look at everybody else in our life that way, I can imagine we would solve some of the political divides that we're seeing in the world. I imagine that we would be more. Uh, thoughtful around things like consent in sexual relationships. I imagine that parents would be uh, more emotionally regulated and attuned to their children. So in a way, I think everybody needs to learn the skills of psychology. And I can say that the the biggest transformation in my life in terms of how I am was going through my master's and learning basic counseling skills and really learning how to listen to a person yeah. in a way that was not just about what I wanted to say next, but what are they really saying about what it's like to be them? Yeah. So in a way, I want us all to be able to do that. Yeah. But then when it comes to the more, uh, you know, the, the professionalization piece and when we actually consider this as an occupation, I think people who are curious, um, people who want to, to know more about being human, people who have the ability to regulate themselves well, but are also tuned into their own personhood and are interested in sharing space with people when they're fully human together. I think that's important, but there's, man, there's so many different kinds of psychology. There's industrial organizational psychology. There is uh, assessment psychology where people are basically just doing diagnostic assessments. And then yeah. there's research psychologists who never really see people. They're in labs yeah. most of the time looking right. at inferential statistics. So I think if you're interested in, a, in people and you're curious, there are so many places that the profession could take you. But what 
really coming back to the question that you were asking about what do I do to fill my cup, I think what's most important is that we don't think about psychology as a way to, to fix ourselves mm. or as a way to fix other people. And that has to be a way that we that we kind of abandon our agenda about being a savior to ourselves or someone else mm. and consider it more as accompaniment, skillful accompaniment, kind of like the the, the midwife. You are not taking the baby out of someone's body. You are also not pathologizing them. You are mm. also not, not uh, a better person in the world because you do that or um, somehow saving yourself from all of your shame because the baby was born, but rather... I think we are slowly undoing the aloneness that we have in our social fabric by moving into the spaces of pain with other people and being with them yeah. instead of treating them as objects. And there is a medicine, there's a social medicine in that. There is a healing for us as the therapists in that. Mm. And if people are up for that, then I think it could be a really good gig. Yeah, I love that. And just to kind of wrap things up here mm -hmm. and to touch on the accompaniment idea. Yeah. Right now, obviously, we're in a very strange time in the world where we are alone a lot of the time mm, through right. this pandemic space. And we've seen a huge shift, at least from my perspective, in people deconstructing their faith, finding finding new spiritual practices they believe in. And I'm I'm curious, do you do you feel like that's already been a natural trajectory where people are becoming more aware of their spirituality? Or do you think that's something that's been exacerbated by the pandemic being mm. forced away from communal religious spaces and into a lot of self-reflection and alone time? Yeah, I think so. I'm doing a, a research project right now about people who've experienced growth or personal transformation during COVID. So the particular focus of the study is collecting data from people who have reported that since everything has happened, there's been a major transformation in their life. And one of the themes for people is how they make sense of it on an existential or spiritual level. So while I don't know, I can't speak to the historicity of spiritual transformation and the global consciousness, was it happening before anyway? Did this accelerate it? Um, did it create an openness for some people that wouldn't have been there? I'm sure that all of those are true. But what I do know is that whenever we are in situations where we feel out of control, we have a choice about how we respond to it. And when things happen that we didn't choose, we get to inc like ask ourselves, what story will I tell about this? How will I respond? Who, who will I ask to accompany me? And what I do know is that there are some people, in particular pe people who have spoken with us in the context of this data collection for these interviews, there are people who have said, I have realized I need my community to access my spirituality because just watching this on Zoom doesn't give me the same feeling as being in a church service with all of these bodies in a room singing together. Wow. But there's other people who have said, wow, my my awareness that that the holy is not just in that building has really been driven home. Or I am suffering more than I've ever suffered because my family members have died and I have lost my job and I'm still intact. And what is holding me intact except mm. for the spirit? So I think for people who are looking for meaning and have a bent towards understanding things existentially or spiritually, they're, they're going to be asking questions of meaning and spirit in this time. But also there is something about the human and this might be the self that we're talking about. 
that when all of these distractions get cleared away, the self emerges. It's like COVID. Yeah. If we go back to the metaphor we were using, COVID has ripped off some of people's coats yeah. because they haven't been able to compulsively work and perform and strive. And it has exposed the selfness that is under there. And that ripping off has been painful. And it has also been liberating from, from the ways that we keep ourselves small. Mm. So I think it's, it's complex. I know that the question perhaps lends itself to a, a more defined answer, but I guess I just like to say, and this is very, the therapist cop-out answer, but like, it just depends. Yeah. Every person's different. Every context no, that's, is different. that's beautiful. I, I, I love it. I don't think I had an idea in my head mm. of anything oh, okay. too linear, but um, okay. that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Now you have a book coming out next year. And yes. you talk about embodiment and we've talked about embodiment a little bit um, today. And I, I think the question I want to ask to give you kind of the floor to talk about that book a little bit is who is who is this book for? Yeah, I mean, I think the book is for a community of people who were told that their bodies are bad. Mm. But I think that the community of people who told their bodies were bad were anybody who grew up in the church in a particularly bifurcating theology where we we were told this very twisted perspective of Paul's theology that, you know, somehow the body is bad and antithetical to the spirit. But I also think that this book is for anybody in a westernized heteropatriarchal context that is capitalist and colonial in nature, because that is separating from the self. So there is a a particular population of us who will have to deal with the more explicit messages that pull us from our body. But I think culturally we're swimming in water that has been telling us, do not listen to your body, control your body, subdue your body, make your body go away and make any body besides the ideal go away. So we don't have to deal with the complexity Mm -hmm. of different experiences of bodies politically. So it's really, I, I mean, it's probably not a popular answer, but it's a, it's a human book yeah. is my sense. Yeah. And I think particularly for those of us who have been wanting to find our way back to ourselves in light of all of the ways we've been pulled from ourselves just to survive in our cultural context. Amazing. And that's coming out next year. You don't have yes, a date it, yet, right? Well, we had a date. It was supposed to be February 9th. And then because of COVID, everything's kind of up in the air. So it will be coming out. We're just trying to figure out what the new release date will be and all of that. But I'll be keeping everybody posted on social media when we've got dates. And yes. can pre-order and all of those things. And that being said, um, to our listeners, if you aren't already, you definitely should be following Hillary McBride on Instagram. It's Hillary L. McBride, correct? Hillary Leanna McBride on Instagram and okay. Hillary L. McBride on Twitter. on Twitter. Okay. Yeah. So everyone go follow her. She is a delight and um, she will just brighten your day anytime she comes across your feed. So make sure you check <laughs> her out and we'll be, uh, we'll be awaiting the book release. Um, oh, thank you so much. Very yes. excited for you. Um, it, I know it feels like just another birth of a child exactly. you've been in <laughs> labor with for a long time, I'm sure. Yes, it's so. true. Thank you for naming that. Yeah. So anyway, guys, like I said, check her out. Thank you all for listening. And until next time. Bye. Bye.